Good morning again. Uh, I am Pastor Jeff Strong at the Nelson Covenant Church. I want to welcome you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, church family, friends in the community. I'm going to just start with a word of prayer, so I would invite you to join with me. God, your word says that your word doesn't go out and return void, and I pray that that would be very true this morning. As we look at a story from the Gospels, it would be deeply instructive to us, really formative, and it would challenge and change how we understand you, ourselves, and our place in the world. We love you, God. Strengthen your people through your word by your spirit. Amen. Okay, we started 2021 with a series called Reset, and we're looking at how to reset after a very chaotic and disruptive 2020. And resets are critical in our lives. They help us to get on track, and they help us to stay on track when we've veered off course or our lives have just become bloated from overcommitment and those kind of burdens of life that just sort of begin to layer as the calendar months tick over into years and all of a sudden you realize you're running the race of your life, but it feels heavy and you feel weighed down. What resets allow us to do is to become aware of those hindrances and burdens and to say, I don't need to carry these anymore. I want to run free and light. Hebrews 12.1 calls Christians to lay aside every hindrance and the sin that can so easily ensnare us. And again, there should be a word of comfort there. If you're feeling hindered in your walk with Christ, if you feel like there's a, a sin that you're just stuck in the cycle of, the writer of Hebrews says that ensnares all of us. It can so easily ensnare us. So don't be discouraged, but recognize that God wants to lead us into a reset that allows us to move forward into greater faithfulness, greater grace, greater power. And to that end, this series is really focused on looking at the habits of heart, soul, mind, and strength that lead us into real recovery, renewal, restoration. I think that's what we all need moving into 2021, but I don't simply want to uh, invite us into those things without giving them handles that we can take hold of and say, oh, okay, I get it, right? If I say recovery, renewal, restoration, most people are going to say, I want those things. I just don't know how to access them. And I don't have a lot of experience in doing that. And this is a series that is walking us step by step through that process. So we looked at the great reset that has to come before all of our other resets. And that's to turn to Jesus and say, I want to be born again. I need to be born again. And then after that reset, we enter into a pattern of Repentance, which is kind of like a word that means reset. It means realizing you're on a wrong turn, you're going down a wrong path, and you say, oh, I've got to reset and turn from this false path, get back onto God's path. And that's what the Christian life is all about, is that return to Jesus, continual turning back when we get off course, and repenting of the paths that we lead ourselves down, and instead saying, God, I want to learn how to walk on your path. Week two, we looked at kingdom essentialism and asked the question, what is essential for every Christian to be committed to? We might express those commitments differently, and thank God that we do. There's diversity and variety in the body of Christ and in the expression of who we are as Christians. But aren't there things that are essential that cut across all of our stages of life, personality traits, experiences that we all should be pursuing together? Things that are essential? 
And we looked at three things, the essential pursuit, which is to seek first as a matter of priority, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then the essential priority, which is to make sure that we're worshiping God alone, that we're not bowing down or serving other idols or other commitments that might even be good, but they compete with God for first allegiance in our lives. And we look for ways to say no to that and to continue to center on God. And then the essential command is that we do those things in and through the grace and love of God, that we learn to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves, so there's this divine, animating, powerful love that propels, our, uh, propels and animates our lives. And when we focus on those essentials, my experience has been, it's really exciting. And it's, it's also a bulletproof philosophy because if you think about it, it actually doesn't matter what's going on in your life. You can go through a year like 2020 or you can transfer those essential areas of focus into a particularly easy year and irrespective of what's happening on the exterior of our lives, regardless of the things that we're battling on the inside, if we keep our focus on God and his kingdom, worshiping him, doing all things in love, that allows us to have an anchor for our thought patterns, our behaviors. There's always an opportunity to focus on and pursue those essentials. Those essentials aren't tied to the externals of our life, everything lining up, my marriage has to be perfect, my uh, relationship with, relationships with my kids have to be per perfect, my, uh, my work has to be perfect. Those things can present all kinds of challenges to us and where do we start? We start by saying, okay, how do I focus on the essentials? How do I move into this area of chaos and mess with the right mindset? And that's why we talked in week three about what it means to have a kingdom mindset that isn't fixed, that doesn't give in to resignation and fatalism, but actually realizes the entire point of the Christian life is to grow. And not just grow in terms of our Bible knowledge, that's part of it, but growing and understanding how to read and, yes, grapple with the Bible, how to take God's word into us, but also how to express that through our lives in ways that are increasingly skillful and thoughtful and effective. Romans 12, 2, we looked at, right? Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, right? Don't look at the pattern of life where people are trying to figure things out on their own and doing life based on what seems right to them, with no reference to God, don't slip or fall into that pattern. Don't conform in that direction. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind or your mindset so that you can test what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's this call to not just become a Christian, not just give our life to Jesus and then say, okay, the most important thing has pretty much happened. I'm saved. I'm going to go to heaven. And now I kind of enter into a sort of a holding pattern until I die. No, the vision for the Christian life is conversion is the start of a massive journey of transformation where I'm growing and learning to cooperate with God so that he can do more in and through me, this side of heaven, to be a light and a witness and, and salt for him. And part of what that looks like is the development and growth of a growth mindset, right? Where we understand and see challenges and trials and hardships, not as a threat to a life of ease, but as an opportunity to go deeper into the life of God. And we presume and anticipate that Jesus is going to be growing us by his word through his spirit. So even when we're tempted 
towards a fatalism, towards a, I've come here, but I don't have any more room to grow, or I'm never going to be good at this, or I'm never going to be able to figure X out in my life. We pause and we say, yet. I haven't mastered this yet. I haven't learned to faithfully follow Jesus in this area the way that I would like to yet. But I know his spirit is at work in me. And so if I continue to cooperate and look for opportunities to grow, I'm trusting that I will get there in God's timing. So kingdom mindset. Last week was kind of a part one, and I wanted to do a bit of a case study for what a kingdom mindset looks like to kind of draw out maybe a different nuance and angle that allows everyone to kind of say, oh, that's interesting. That's really, really helpful. And I want to introduce this scripture by asking a question that we often aren't asked as Christians. And that question is this. What kind of mindset does Jesus take notice of and reward? What kind of mindset does Jesus take notice of and reward in the Gospels specifically? Now, for many of us, that's a difficult question to wrap our heads around because we don't normally think of Jesus as looking for mindsets and then responding in a particularly favorable way to one. Maybe some of you thought, well, I don't really know about mindsets, but I can think of a few times in the Gospels where something happens, Jesus has an encounter with someone, and he says, oh, you had great faith, or your faith has made you well, or your faith has healed you. And those, uh, those encounters do happen throughout the gospel. And, but I also think that those encounters, when Jesus talks about faith or is highlighting a person's particular faith, embedded in his response is an acknowledgement of a certain kind of mindset. Now, when many Christians hear the word faith, um, well, let me ask you, what do you think of? What, what are your emotional associations with the word faith? For some people, their mind goes right away to like, well, kind of like humble trust, believing in something. That might refer to a general system of beliefs, but it also could just mean that I, I trust Jesus with my life, so I have faith in him. Yeah, good things. Certainly those are dimensions of faith. But there's an angle, there's a nuance to how Jesus highlights faith in the Gospels that can sometimes get lost on us because of the cultural distance between our context and Jesus's. So one of the best explanation of what Jesus meant by the word faith, or what was at least included in his understanding of great faith or faith that gets rewarded, was advanced by the scholar Robert Lindsay. And he's actually part of a team of scholars doing this. David Flusser, Brad Young, Marvin Wilson, Shemuel Frey, Joseph Frankovic. I was actually exposed to it through the work of Brad Young. And what these scholars are doing is to try and close that cultural gap and to say the way Jesus used words in the context of first century Judaism might have nuances that we miss because we're 2,000 years removed from that context. And I'm not going to bury the lead. What they are um, offering, and I think it really helps us to make sense of, of some of these stranger texts, is that 
the English word, which has to be a part of our understanding of what it means to have faith, is the word audacity. The word that they say, in terms of modern linguistics, comes the closest to capturing that edge and dimension of faith is probably the word chutzpah. Now, in our context, chutzpah is often connected to someone being too pushy, too aggressive, right? If someone is overstepping their boundaries, if they're speaking into situations that they should be self-aware of enough to realize, this isn't really my place to do or to say this, we might say, well, that's a lot of chutzpah. So it has kind of a negative connotation. But think about how many times Jesus uses the phrase, your faith has made you well, your faith has healed you. What is it about this person's faith that Jesus is drawing attention to? Is it just belief in God and um, kind of a low-resolution, really broad sense of, yeah, I believe in God and I trust Jesus is going to do something? Is it humble trust, kind of a piety that says, I, I acknowledge God in my life and I just want to walk humbly before him? The challenge is if we only understand faith as those things, Jesus highlighting particular people's faith won't make sense because don't tons of people in these contexts have belief in God? Aren't the vast majority of people who surrounded Jesus at least God-fearing and probably genuinely humble before God? They trust in God. They have faith in God. What Jesus is highlighting is a faith that goes beyond humble trust into audacious action. Jesus says, wow, you have a kind of faith that propels you to doing something very audacious. And in these stories, the kind of faith which manifests itself, we might use adjectives like grit or resiliency or even just guts. People are acting in really gutsy ways when we understand this context. But instead of them acting with these bold, audacious movements and Jesus saying, tisk, tisk, that's, that's not very humble. That's not very right. That's not actually very faithful. He says, wow. Remember the centurion who has a servant who's dying and Jesus says, take me to, the, to your servant? And the centurion says, uh, you know what? I, I get it, man. I see you have power. I have power too. If I said to my servant, do this, they would just do it. So I know that all you have to do is say a word. And Jesus looks around and he's like, are you kidding me? That is faith. This guy, there's not anyone in all of Israel who has this kind of faith. That's audacity. To not just invite Jesus to heal, but to say, you don't even have to come to my, come to my house. Just say the word. That's amazing. In these stories, Jesus is highlighting a faith that has chutzpah that threads this needle of not being overly aggressive, but is at times kind of pushy because it's grounded in a conviction that God is good and God is powerful. And if we're honest with God and pursue God seriously, we should expect powerful good things to happen. And once you understand this dimension to faith, then it sort of becomes, it kind of pops out at you, not just in the Gospels, but throughout Scripture. You realize 
when people act with this kind of faith, God responds in sometimes really astounding ways, right? It's with this kind of chutzpah, this faith that Abraham negotiates with God to not destroy the whole city in Genesis 18. You should read that. That takes a lot of chutzpah when God says, I'm going to destroy this city. And you're like, not a bad idea, good idea. But what if there was like 50 people, 50 righteous people? Would you spare this city then? Sure. If there's 50 people. Okay, what about 40 though, God? And he keeps bartering God down. That's really audacious. That's not just humble trust. It's Abraham saying, I know you're good. I know you're powerful. I'm going to fight into you and into your promises, right? It's chutzpah that causes Jacob to wrestle with God and say, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. His faith has guts. It's chutzpah that, it's with chutzpah that Hannah prays for her child. It's with chutzpah that Moses argues with God for the mercy on the Israelite people in Exodus 32. Do you know how much chutzpah it takes for a shepherd boy to take on uh, the commanding warrior of God's sworn enemies? Right? The story of David and Goliath. Read that story again in 1 Samuel 17. David has chutzpah. All the Israelites had faith in God to a certain extent. But David is audacious in his willingness to step forward. Think about the parables Jesus taught. The kind of faith or chutzpah that it takes to wake up a neighbor in the middle of the night to get uh, some bread for unexpected guests. Or the chutzpah of a child asking a father for food. Or the chutzpah of a widow who doesn't stop pleading with a godless and uncaring judge until he gives her justice. Think about the chutzpah that it would have taken, the audacity that would have led people to tear open ruse, go against social pressure in order to lower their friend who is crippled, jump the queue, get him in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, we believe you can heal our friend. And in Mark 5, starting in verse 21, we have another amazing story about chutzpah. And it's really instructive for us because it shows us how a kingdom mindset actually manifests in daily life. So I'm going to read it. I invite you to follow along with me. Mark 5, we'll start at verse 21. So when Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and lived. And so Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. So think about this, this huge movement of people going to Jairus' house, he's a prominent person in the community, he's inferring, right? He's asking Jesus for a miracle. Jesus says, yep. So everyone's excited to see what this miracle is going to look like. Verse 25, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him and the crowd touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. 
And at once Jesus realized that power had gone out of him, and he turned around in the crowd and he asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and you're going to ask us who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I want you to try and put yourself in the shoes of this woman. And to do that, we have to know a few things about her. And I'm going to move through these quickly, but they're pieces that begin to form a picture of how desperate her situation really was. First of all, she is completely isolated because of her blood issue that makes her, according to Mosaic law, unclean. That doesn't mean sinful. It just means that she's unclean. There were different discharges that for a man or a woman rendered you unclean until you went through certain ritual purity, um, certain purity rituals. And until you could do that, you were unclean, which means you could contaminate other people. This is why the lepers in Jesus' day kept on the outskirts of society because no one wanted them to come near them so that they could be safe from being contaminated. So she was isolated. She's also religiously and socially ostracized because if you have a blood issue that renders you unclean and it's more or less consistent and it's permanent, you can't go to Jerusalem. You cannot participate in temple worship. God makes it very clear in those Old Testament texts that you have to approach the concentric circles of his temple worship in purity. So she's isolated from people. She's isolated from all of the communal rituals and celebrations and worship that would allow her to connect not just with other people, but with God in a powerful way. And maybe this leads to other people seeing her as cursed or this being some kind of karmic punishment for a secret sin that she's done. Because that sometimes comes up with people in the Gospels. Jesus, why is this person suffering? Is it because they did something wrong? They did some really heinous sin? You can imagine if you had a blood issue that wasn't resolving, that lasted a year, five years, a decade, people might begin to wonder and say, Wow, she must have really done something to offend the Almighty. So maybe she carries this shame. She is tempted into thinking, is there something fundamentally wrong with me? We know she's persistent, but we also know she's broke. She spent all of her money trying to get well with different uh, health professionals in her day. And not only has she not gotten better, but there's been a downward spiral. It's gotten worse. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with a prolonged illness of any kind. Not an acute one, but something that's a bit more chronic. Some of us have a hard time not getting well after a week or after a month. And I know there's people in this church, other people that I know, who have been not well physically for years and even for decades. The toll that takes on you is enormous. But she's not even in a state of stasis where it's just stayed bad. It's gotten worse. So the suffering and the hardship is amplified. 
And this is the kind of suffering, I hope you can see, that touches her entire life. It's not like, well, I'm struggling in this particular area of my life, or I've got this little nagging injury, but I can still more or less do 90% of what I would like to do and what I would normally do. That's not this kind of issue. This blood issue contaminates her entire life, her entire ability to live in a way that she wants, that God wants. Now, what kind of mindset would you have if you were this woman? If you had to endure this kind of chronic illness, this kind of frustration, if you've spent time, and I mean, you've been obsessed, honestly, with trying to figure out how do I get healing for this? How do I find relief? How many of us, after year one, would have given up, would have given in, would have resigned ourselves, maybe even um, used fancy spiritual language, kind of a theological fatalism. Well, I guess this is just the way it's going to be. I guess this is God's will. I tried, I prayed, I did what I could, and yeah, that's it. Maybe she even prayed like Job did in the Old Testament. God, take my life. Because what's the point of me living? It's better that I... It would have been better had I not been born. That's a lament that Job speaks honestly to God. And you can imagine this woman. Maybe we've had those same thoughts. God, I feel so trapped. I feel so burdened. I feel so hemmed in by this particular hardship. I don't even know why you're keeping me alive. But notice there is something about her faith in God that she has despite all these other limitations, she has chutzpah. Her faith has guts. She's persistent. She hasn't given up. She's got a faith that fights forward. And her mind is clearly, and has been for a long time, set on securing her healing, even if she hasn't done so yet. Where does that chutzpah come from? Where does that mindset come from? Well, we find it in Scripture. It's grounded for her in Scripture. There's enough in this text to show us she was passionately devoted to Scripture. In Malachi, which is an Old Testament prophet, chapter 4, verse 2, it says, for those who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, speaking to the sun in the sky, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Pretty obscure verse, but this verse is a key that unlocks how we understand this woman thought about God herself, the kind of mindset that she had. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene for century Judaism, this phrase, the son of righteousness, does get connected to the messianic hope and expectation. This is seen as one of many messianic prophetic texts that will allow the Jewish people to identify who the actual Messiah is of God when God sends the Messiah. And it says there's going to be healing in the Messiah's wings, which, again, for us, we might think, oh, it's kind of a poetic way of saying he's going to heal people. Okay, whatever. Uh, but it doesn't really help get us fully where we need to be. In Matthew 9, in Matthew's telling of this story, it gets a little bit, it's more obscured in Mark. But in Matthew's telling of the story, 
This woman makes it clear that what she's trying to do isn't just particularly touch Jesus' clothes or cloak, as some translations have it, but she wants to touch the fringe of his garment. There's another clue there. What's going on there with the fringe? Well, Jewish males wore something called a talit. A talit is a prayer shawl. You've probably seen it if you've seen Orthodox Jews praying at the Wailing Wall. It kind of looks like a little blanket, and it's got these little tassels on the edges of it. And Jewish males will often pray with their heads covered, uh, the talit covering their heads, and then they'll just wear it off the shoulder, uh, sort of like a poncho. It, it looks a little bit like a poncho. The fringe of a talit of this cloth has, again, these little abraded tassels. They're loosely hanging threads, and they're actually specially knotted and worn specifically on the corners of the garment. And the reason why those are there is because God in Numbers 25 says this to the nation of Israel. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them and not to follow after your own heart and after your own eyes. So they're meant to, as you feel them brush against your skin, as you see them, as you see the tassels being worn, the talent and the tassels being worn on other people, you're meant to be reminded of the entirety of the word of God and how you're called to obey it and not simply live in a way that seems right to you. Now, what's important, again, to understand is by Jesus' day, the tassels, which are called tzitzit in uh, Hebrew, those tassels that were on the fringes of the garment were referred to as the wings of the talit. And so when you put all of these pieces together, there's a very particular way this woman read this text and understood Malachi 4.2. When the Messiah comes, he's not just going to offer healing, but there's going to be healing through his tzitzits, these tassels, the corners of his talit. There'll be healing found there. And this is why she says, all I have to do is get to Jesus and touch the hem or the corner of his garment because God's word has promised me, if he's the Messiah, there's going to be healing for me. I don't need to ask. I don't need to be a big imposition. I don't need to draw attention to myself. I just need to touch the hem of his garment. She has a kingdom mindset. She hasn't given up on growth and progress but it's grounded in the word of God. It's not just a pop psychology like, oh, I'm just going to put on a smile or shift into positive thinking. But she has studied God's word and reflected on it. And in the crucible of suffering has held on to the fact that God is good and God is powerful and God will vindicate his word. And if his word says when the Messiah comes, if you touch the tassels of his talent, you will be healed. She's been holding on to that. So let's return back to that question. What kind of faith does Jesus reward? Not just in the Gospels, but today. What kind of faith? I think this story shows us something critical. 
it shows us the kind of faith that Jesus rewards. Not passive, humble trust. There's a place for that. But what we see in this story is Jesus responding to a woman who's got chutzpah. Audacity. Her mindset has allowed her to move forward in persistence, grounded in God's word, and continues to hope and pray and fight forward. She hasn't given up. She hasn't given in to, it is what it is, resignation. She hasn't given in to, what are you going to do? She hasn't given in to that kind of fatalism. right? Those are, that's the manifestation of fixed thinking where we say, I've grown to here, I've developed to here, this is where God has taken me, and it's pretty much here, no further. And uh, yeah, when I became a Christian, I thought there'd be growth, and there was, and now we're, we're kind of plateaued, this is the ceiling, and now we just pause, and now we, I just wait to die. No, she's like, I believe my best days are ahead of me, and I'm going to go after them. A fixed mindset, where we think that God has pretty much done all that God can do in and through our lives. That's a spiritually fatal mindset because it's the antithesis to living with audacious faith and audacious hope. And if we have that mindset, if we're tempted into believing little and less of God and God's spirit and God's power in our lives, through our lives, then we need to challenge that mindset We need to confront it because it opposes growth and it opposes our maturity in Jesus. It stops spiritual transformation in its tracks and it keeps us stuck in really unproductive, unhealthy, ungodly patterns. It's a mindset that needs to be repented of and we need to say, Jesus, will you teach me how to have a kingdom mindset grounded in your word and in your goodness? Would you teach me how to live with chutzpah? I want to begin cooperating in my transformation with you. I don't want to believe that whether I'm 16 or 76, whether I'm a mom with young kids, whether I'm an empty nester, I don't care what stage of life I'm at, God. I want to know and trust and chase after the fact that my best years are ahead of me if I cooperate with you. I haven't learned how to do that yet, but I'm determined to make it happen. Is your mindset a kingdom mindset? Right? Does your mindset naturally facilitate growth and maturity in Jesus? Or does it just keep you stuck in repeating the same patterns that maybe you learned 5, 10, 50 years ago? Does your mindset facilitate chutzpah And I don't mean extroversion or being big and bold in front of people. That's not what chutzpah is. Chutzpah is a disposition. So it might be expressed in very gentle ways. It's not just storming the hill and doing big things for God. It could look like a 17-year-old high school student who's who's being pressured in all kinds of subtle and not-so-subtle ways to walk down a path that they don't want to walk down. Chutzpah allows that teenager to say, in the face of all kinds of social consequence, I'm not gonna do this. That's chutzpah. Chutzpah looks like someone at work being invited, pressured, maybe even threatened 
to go down a path that's illegal, that involves deception, and they know that if they go down that path, their life will get a lot easier, and if they don't, they might actually lose their livelihood, chutzpah says, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm trusting in God. I won't let other people bully me. I will honor God before all things. It's faith with guts. It's a group of people across our churches who are saying, we have a heart for kingdom ministry in the lives of children and youth and young adults. So not only are we going to try and rally people around to buy a camp, we're going to rally people around to buy that camp and expand its ministry and do it in the context of a pandemic. That's chutzpah. Does your mindset naturally and consistently lead you to express your faith with passion and with guts? We should want to grow in that direction because what we see in the Gospels, what I've seen in my life, what you will see in your life if you haven't already, is that Jesus actually rewards audacious faith. So let's cultivate it. Here are two things you can do this week. Number one, look at an area of loss in your life, an area of struggle, an area of desperation maybe. could be related to an illness or a relational challenge or a vocational uh, uh, problem, mental health stuff. doesn't matter. Take one area and begin to ask yourself, what would it look like for me to pray into this situation with chutzpah, with real guts? So just take one area and every day just pray into that with chutzpah and invite God's Spirit to teach you how to pray with passion and audacity. And number two, to reflect and to be aware of and mindful of the question, where is God opening up an opportunity for me to audaciously pursue him? Where is God opening up an opportunity for me to express my faith with chutzpah? To lead me out of theological fatalism and resignation and to say, no, that's a wrong way of living. That's a sinful way of living. Because what you're saying is the circumstances in your life, you're ultimately saying, let's just be honest, they're more powerful than God. So this is what I should expect for the rest of my life here. No. Where do I need to hear God's voice saying, You've had a fixed mindset here. You haven't been operating with chutzpah and a kingdom mindset here. I want you to transition, and here's how I'm going to do it. Here's an opportunity. Ask God to show you. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you develop a kingdom mindset that is excited to grow and learn and that anticipates growth and learning. And may your kingdom mindset cause you to live and love with chutzpah, with real audacity and guts. And may you find new healing and new life in Jesus as you follow him audaciously into this new year. And may the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you guys soon.